0: You make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you, that's it.
1: It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment.
0: And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed and the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying
1: to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult.
0: Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander.
1: So, welcome everyone. I'm Kaya Alexander, the host of Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast. Today, we have a very special guest for you, Carol Kirshner. Let me tell you about Carol. Having worked as a senior level television development executive for 18 years, including at CBS and Steven Spielberg's first Amblin television, Carol has heard over 5,000 pitches, read more than 3,000 scripts bought hundreds of projects, and was involved in developing dozens of TV series. She is the creator and director of the CBS Diversity Writers Mentoring Program, and is the director of the Writers Guild of America's showrunner training program. Her book, Hollywood Game Plan, How to Land a Job in Film, TV, and Digital Entertainment, published by Michael Weiss Publishers, is taught in colleges around the country. Welcome, Carol. Thank you. Well, I'm really happy to have you with us and on the show today. We're recording in front of my um, Entertainment Business School students today, so I know we're really excited to dive in with you. Talk me through how you got interested in the entertainment industry and where did you get started?
0: Great question. Um, To go back a little farther than probably you wanted to ask, what I knew in high school was I didn't want a nine-to-five job. I didn't care if I worked eight till midnight. I didn't want a regular job. Um, I ended up working after graduating from college with an English degree in a museum. Um, and there there were a lot, uh, I was the assistant. Actually, we called them secretaries 100 years ago. I was a secretary to the director. Um, and I was funny and hardworking and charming. And the volunteers, they were really, Rich ladies volunteering um, liked me. And one of them said to me one day, You know, I have a friend who's starting, he's a TV writer and he's starting a production company. He's looking for an assistant. Are you interested? And I said, No, because I had started doing stand up about six months before. And I knew it was just a matter of days until I was rich and successful as a stand up. Oh, but fabulous. That night, I thought, what the hell are you doing? And the next morning I said, yes, I, I, I want to meet your friend. And, um, I ended up working for that company for five years as a development executive, not unlike you, except it was TV movies. And I had a penchant for finding the, um, the sexy titles of, um, for TV movies back in the day. And after five years, um, it was clear it was never going to be the the two guys I worked for were Jim Henderson, Jim Hirsch. It was real clear it wasn't going to be Henderson, Hirsch, Kirshner. And because <laughs> I'm way ambitious, I um, I left. I, I launched a networking campaign, which I encourage everybody to do. And I met with twenty people who I had met through being working for that company. And ultimately, I got two job offers, one from ABC comedy and one from CBS comedy. And I took the CBS comedy one and the guy that hired me, I said in the interview, I hear on the street that you're leaving. And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, Carol, I'm not leaving. You don't have to worry. The first Friday that I was there, he came into my office and he said, Carol, I'm leaving. And I thought, welcome to Hollywood. Um so then a new boss came in. It was a little uh tricky at first, but a big part of my job was managing the politics of it, which by the way I hated. The creative part I love, but the politics part I hated. We um, have that in common. The politics was the hardest part for me. Yeah, it's it's draining. Do you know what I mean? The, working with writers, finding projects, you know, developing it from, from a idea to a series was very exciting. Um, but making sure that my boss felt like I understood everything he said and was on his team and uh, anyways, and a story again for everybody, this is, this you should probably hear. Um, and it's about holding a grudge. So when I was at CBS, there was an agent who really can I use the F word here? Or oh yeah, no, no, we're good with that. We're we're
1: all com- okay. a lot of us are
0: comics. <laughs> okay, so he fucked me on a deal, and I thought I will never do business with this guy again. Fast forward about five or six years, he helped me get a job, and suddenly we were pals again. So you don't want to burn any bridges. Um, from CBS, I. I was brought over to start Steven Spielberg's first Amblin Television Department, which was very heady um, business. Not um, anything to do with like Amazing Stories or anything. Amazing Stories was right before I got there. They had done that without a television department, and then he decided he wanted a television department. We did Tiny Toons and Harry and the Hendersons, and my favorite story about Tiny Toons was. Stephen was shooting um a movie way up in the wilderness. It was about smoke jumpers and he had to approve some artwork. So I had to take six flights in one day starting from a commercial flight to a sort of uh um a smaller flight to a four-seater to get to him for him to approve this the um, the the artwork. Anyways, so After I left there, I worked for two international production companies. One was a French company. One was an English company. And I was their U.S. development department. And one day um, when I was in Montreal, because all I did was travel, I realized that my husband and the nanny were raising my two-year-old daughter. And I thought, that is not why I had a child. So I talked to my husband. I'm sure you can relate to this. I I have a 10 year old. So yeah, I know it really well. Exactly. And, and we talked and we decided to change our lifestyle and I became a consultant. That's a different life. The great news about being a consultant, no politics. I just have to make one person, my client happy. Um, And as a consultant, I created the CBS Diversity Writers Mentoring Program. We're now in year 18, and it is now called the Paramount Diversity Writers Mentoring Program. I know they just rebranded, didn't they? Go back to their roots here. I know. It was like one day it was a CBS program, and literally the next day it was a Paramount program. Welcome to Hollywood. Um, I know they're trying to get those stocks up right now. It's a little tenuous. They need to do that. Um, they sold the Radford lot, which is where our offices were, and nobody's in the office because of COVID. but when we come back, it'll it'll be interesting. Um, well, tell us more about founding
1: the CBS Diversity. This is eighteen years ago before diversity was the exciting buzzword that it is today, and imperative. That it has become, thankfully, especially for the BIPOC creators.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, Actually, the way that it started was I was approached by the Writers Guild, and, and I no longer remember how they knew me, but the Writers Guild and a current executive from CBS. And what had happened was I don't know how many people remember the WB, but the WB network sort of launched on urban shows, read Black shows. And after they launched, they sort of canceled the Black shows and mostly had white shows. And the Writers Guild was very concerned that mid-level writers, Black writers, were not getting hired again. So we did a day-long workshop on, and I, I organized it, and I brought in mid-level and upper-level writers of color who talked about what they did to stay employed. I brought in executives and agents and managers about how you navigate the business. And basically, and there were 500 people there. And part of what I said is, you know, it's not right. It's not fair. But the only way out of it is to write your way out of it. You have to write new material. There's other people that don't have to write new material, but you have to write new material. Anyways, we did that a couple of times. And then my CBS colleague said, why don't, no, actually, I said, why don't we do this on an ongoing basis? And so that's how that was born. Um, And over the 18 years, we've helped launch the careers of more than 100 writers of color And this is so exciting. 14 of our alumni are showrunners. And of those, nine have been through my showrunner program. So nothing makes me feel better than that. Um,
1: Does the diversity program include
0: LGBTQ? Yes. Yes, it does. And writers with disabilities, it's underrepresented groups, Mm -hmm. underrepresented voices in communities. Absolutely. Um, And because of my work with CBS, I was asked to help writer producer Jeff Melvoin develop the curriculum for the WGA showrunner training program and we're now in year 17 and over 120 new series um, have been created or executive produced by alumni of that program. Um, about seven years ago I wrote the book that you mentioned and and what made me do that was I was having lunch one day with a uh, a high powered uh, manager, and he was complaining that he couldn't find young people who were willing to work, who had the right attitude. He said, In my company, the entry level position is the receptionist. And he said, Whenever I would ask her, because at the time it was her, to bring me coffee, she rolled her eyes. And I realized that people needed people just coming into the business needed to understand that a sense of entitlement is not going to help you. The book was really for two people, two sort of communities of people. One was uh, those kids that felt entitled and how to get them past that. And then again, underrepresented communities who didn't know how the business worked and I took them behind the curtain and gave them a step-by-step guide on how you break in um, and over the years I've become a workshop leader and speaker and I do that internationally although for the past two years it's been uh, in my pajama bottoms um, And I'm also an entertainment career coach so that I can work one-on-one with people, which I love, primarily screenwriters and um, directors. So that's me.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. Let's talk nuts and bolts a bit because you have been inside so many shows getting to air uh, with your vision and your instincts. Talk to me about some tips, especially for writers and aspiring showrunners about getting into the types of positions that they really want to be in, like being staffed and ultimately becoming showrunners. Well,
0: let me start with, well, talk about getting staffed. There's a couple of different ways that you get staffed. One is certainly if you're fortunate enough to get into one of the programs that the networks and the studios have like mine, often you will have your first staff job because of being in that program. And for the past three years, because of my colleague Jeannie Mao at CBS, who's now at NBC, Every one of our mentees for the past three years have gotten staffed. Um, it's quite a record, and no other program, I must say, can Every say that.
1: One of them, Carol.
0: Congratulations! That's exciting. It's very exciting for them, um, for the writers. So that's one way. Another way is to have your reps, you know, agents, managers, or maybe an entertainment attorney if they're that kind of an attorney. Um, submit your material to studios and networks and ultimately producers and showrunners. Those are the people who make the decisions. The showrunner makes a decision about who they want to hire. But often it's a gauntlet to get to the showrunner. You meet with a studio executive and then you meet with a producer, somebody from the production company, and then you meet with the showrunner. Um, Sometimes it's in reverse. You meet with a showrunner. They want you. You have a great interview. You kick ass and they love your material. And by the way, if you have a meeting with a showrunner, they have definitely read your material. If you have a meeting with an executive, they may not have read your material. So the showrunner says, I want Sherry Winkleman. And then... um, they have to be sort of approved of by the network or the studio and at the junior level the network always says hi at the upper levels it's not always they always say yes and at the upper levels that's not always the case so that's how you get staffed um oh the other way is if your aunt is the head of the network (laughs) <laughs> and you have such a good chance of good old fashioned nepotism. Exactly. <laughs> Here to stay in
1: Hollywood. Uh, Welcome with, to Hollywood with the uh, with the Writers Guild strike. I yeah. know and encourage my students to go direct and to reach out on Twitter and direct message the people that they want to work with, whether it's showrunners or writers. What have you seen since the Writers Guild strike in terms of uh, numbers, people getting hired, those kinds of relationships being built uh, on the outside of the agents?
0: Right. You don't mean a strike. You mean the action with the uh, agency. Yes, what the, I, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, Cause there was a strike many years ago. This is, this is like different. I gotta tell you, a lot of people did fine. They did fine. There's a portal at the Writers Guild where you can find people and it's broken debt writers and it's broken down into many different categories. And I know four people, four writers who use social media to get representation, and to get hired. So it wasn't a huge amount, but it really happened. And I think you're really smart to encourage, but it, do it every single way on social media. And um, because of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, people who weren't open to new people, new writers, became open to getting new voices. So there was a real openness. And and my hope, of course, is it stays that way of people, of decision-makers being open to new voices. Um, So yes, that's another way. Absolutely, I've heard about it. It's not a landslide number of people, but it's a fact. So that's a great suggestion.
1: It just seems like the hustle doesn't end. You know, you hustle to get a rep, then you hustle to get the job, then you hustle to stay employed, you know, in a guild where a lot of the writers are not employed at any given time. Um,
0: It is, you know, here's the truth. You have to probably get your own first job before you get a rep. Or, and a lot of people think, I've got an agent or I've got a manager, I can sit back. And that is just baloney Yeah, because you have, you have to do the work yourself. Um, and part of that work absolutely is having samples that are killer. Um, and the other part is networking so that you meet as many people as you possibly can. Because that personal relationship, will result, can result in a meeting with a showrunner or a meeting with somebody who says you're great and I love your material. I'm going to introduce you to my friend, the showrunner. Um, And what I tell people is when you do have an agent and a manager or an agent or a manager, they work for you. A lot of people feel like I I want them to like me. I want to be good. They work for you. And I think everybody should be prepared to give their agents and managers marching orders at least once a year. And what your job is, is to come up, if you're a television writer, is to come up with all the shows you'd like to be staffed on, which of your samples is a good fit, and then anybody that you know personally that is connected to that show. You need to drive the bus. Because they will not necessarily do it. They have hundreds of clients, but your your business is your career.
1: Yeah, you and I echo one another in that capacity because one of the mistakes I see, Really ambitious creatives make even is if they just feel like if they're just talented enough and they just have the right samples they just have the right things in their portfolio then that's enough and without the networking side making friends in the school I call it finding your wolf pack because a lot of success among that's replicated where you you find somebody great you love working with them work together again stay connected for your whole career and you can rise together.
0: Totally agree. Um, And sort of pivoting to something that I really think is important. It's being able to talk about yourself in a way that gets people excited and leaning forward. And um, that's a huge amount of what the hustle is, is getting people excited about working with you. And if you're interested, I have a free ebook called Tell Your Story in 60 Seconds, and I, you are so welcome to have it. You can get it at Carolkirshner.com forward slash story. Fill out all of the worksheet, and you'll be able to talk about yourself in a way that gets people leaning forward. So you, you have to have what I call your personal PR strategy. It's, it's your entertainment brand, for lack of a better word. Because that's as important as the creative work. The people that are successful know how to talk about themselves in a way that people go, wow, I want to know more. Wow, this person seems great. They have great stories and um, I want to work with them.
1: And we're in a name, name brand business.
0: So yeah. you are building the brand of your
1: name because that's really what matters. When we're seeing deals like you know, three hundred million dollars that Netflix is giving uh, a creator like Ryan Murphy, it's a name brand business, and that's here to stay. So, yeah, speaking with confidence, authority about who you are with some sizzle and some fun, um, it brings people in. they they do lean forward and they're like, hey, what do who are you? Tell me more. right. Because you
0: will hear in your career until you reach a certain point and everybody knows you, you're gonna hear these words. So tell me about yourself, especially when you're starting out. Um, And it's super important that you be able to tell that story in a compelling way. And um, another thing I really recommend is as you meet people, and maybe you've talked about this, I really encourage you to use a networking database Um, a spreadsheet. And I'm happy to send you one that really works. Just email me at carol at carolkirshen.com and I'll send it to you.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. I do encourage them to keep an Excel spreadsheet going, especially the writers for who has their work, who's reading them, who they need to follow up with, when they talk
0: to them last, when should they reach out again, all of that. Exactly. And this is a template that that you just have to fill out to have all of that stuff. You don't have to keep it on your, um, on your phone. You know, I asked my clients, so do you have a database, a, a spreadsheet? And they go, no, I have it in my contacts in my phone. That's not enough. No, it's, it's as not. you said, it's what did they read of yours? When did you meet with them? Who introduced you? When should you follow up? What did you talk about in that meeting so that it's personal?
1: Absolutely. This is a, industry of relationships. So the better you are at relationships, the better your career is going to go. And even a simple tip tip, like if you're introduced to someone and that introduction goes well, you connect well with that person you've been introduced to. Don't forget to circle back to the person who introduced you and say, thank you. That was so awesome. I'm so grateful. I appreciate this. We had a wonderful meeting. Here's what we talked about. Cause that just bolsters the relationships on both sides. That's
0: fantastic advice. It's absolutely right. And for any of your successes, and, and I'm sure you've talked about this too, the best time to reach out to all the people in your spreadsheet is when something good happens for you. And then the subject line is just good news. And it's a very brief three sentences on what happened. I got repped, I got staffed, I got a deal, I sold a project. And then if they had anything, to do with you getting there, even if it was years ago, thank them. People love to feel like they're responsible in part for someone's successes. Oh, I love that tip. What else do you love
1: to advise, especially the writers who work with you? Like what what mistakes do you see? Maybe we could go there. What mistakes do you see that are common threads that you're like, oh, here it is again when
0: you work with people? Right. Really good question. Thanks. Um, A lot of my clients, well, there's a couple of things. A lot of them say, Yeah, I met a lot of people, but I don't keep up. That is a really big one that I hear over and over and over again. And then we do a campaign for them to get back in touch with the people they haven't connected with. And in addition to if something good happens to you, you should be reading the trades, and um, when something good happens to them, just send a brief email saying, "Congratulations in the uh, subject line, and then two sentences on why it's great what's happening to them, and one sentence on what you're doing. It just keeps you on their radar. Um, and it's interesting, because, you know, I've been fortunate over the years to work with a lot. A very successful, creative people. And I wanted to study what made the successful ones successful versus the ones that sort of gave up and went back to Ohio to sell insurance. And I discovered there were four things they had in common. And I love numbering things. If you ever work with me or see my book or anything, I love working with numbers. Um, so the four things, which I call the four pillars of success, are blazing hot work, a smart self-marketing strategy, a um, comprehensive and ever-growing community of mutually beneficial relationships, contacts, mutually beneficial, and being industry savvy, understanding the part of the business that you're in, who the players are, what the trends are, what's happening, so you can talk about it in a thoughtful way. And so I work with my clients on all those things. Um, and often what happens is they come to me because they don't have traction, or they had success, but they're, you know, they're sort of faltering. And what's often the case is they're trying to do too many things at one time. And um, the analogy I use is, imagine that you're at the airport and you're on the tarmac, and there's five planes, And they all want to take off at the same time. Nobody is taking off until they line up one behind the other, behind the other. And the first one takes off and gets airborne. And then the next one takes off and gets airborne. And that's what needs to happen with what you focus on in your work. I love
1: that analogy of the planes taking off. It makes yeah. a lot of sense because until you have, and that's the success is like, Hey, I had this one success. It worked and you can build on it. If you're trying to do too many things, nothing will get off the ground. As you said,
0: absolutely true. And when I work with clients, I have them come to me and tell me what your short and long-term goals. And what are the obstacles that you feel are getting in the way of those goals? And then we come up with a game plan for how to overcome those obstacles. And just going back to a minute to the blazing hot work, um, I have found with all the scripts I've read, and it's literally more than 3,000 now with the programs that I run, um, that in any group, any given group of scripts, this is not exactly the ratios, but it's generally correct. It's the idea you'll get. 5% of them are so bad that your mother knows they're bad. You know what I mean? Anybody, whether they're in the business or not, knows they're bad. And 5% are so great. And as I like to say, your dentist would know it was great. And the rest of them are somewhere between good to very good. And the days when you could just be good are over. You now have to be from very good to blazing hot, and often what makes a script blazing hot is that it's contempt from new people is its contemporary and its high concept. Um, a lot of new writers make the mistake of writing a period piece, and I am afraid that the people who get to make period pieces are people like Ryan Murphy. Um, everybody else, when you're starting out, have one contemporary sample
1: coaching on those period pieces (laughs) yeah
0: no coaching is the problem (laughs) oh coaching that is so expensive Yeah, that it's so expensive yes yes i thought you were saying that they'll make money on no No. you're not going to pick up a project most likely and i never say never because there's always exceptions um but they're un- it's unlikely they're going to buy a project from you who've never had a project done before. That's a period piece, because as you say, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching.
1: Carol, how do you define high concept? I know I talk with my students about it in the entertainment business school, cause it's just that much more of a chance that it'll get made. Um, and I give them the example of like Judd Apatow's movie knocked up, which sold off
0: the title. How do you define high concept? That is such a good question. And I wish I could give you the best answer in the whole wide world, but the answer I can give you is it's something that you can say in a sentence. It is something that the moment you hear it, you get what it is. It is clear what it is. It is exciting. Um, it's juicy. Um, the words, the buzzwords now, and I'm sure you talk about them are uh, buzzy and sexy and noisy. And it is something that is not a um, well crafted character drama or comedy. It is an idea, it yeah. is a concept that grabs you emotionally. You get what it is, and it appeals to a broad audience. And do you define broad audience as four quadrant? I don't know
1: that term. So, oh, I think I know that term, but why don't you tell me it again? I mean, essentially, that four quadrant definition of you know, young women and older women, young men and older men. Spider Man having proven out that we're getting young men to the theaters during the pandemic, right? Because a lot of the box office went to the young men going to see Spider Man.
0: Yeah, of course, of course it it appeals to um, a whole, I love, okay. It appeals to the four quadrants. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to appeal to everybody, but it has to appeal to mostly everybody. And there has to be a curiosity about what happens, what, what's going to happen. You kind of know what's going to happen. You have an excitement and anticipation about it, but it makes you want to find out how that happens.
1: Here we are in this era, which is really like the golden age of television, because everything has turned into series. And it seems like a we're looking at the exhibitors needing films that have theatrical necessity. I mentioned Spider-Man, of course, Marvel, um, anything that pulls you to the theater. Channing Tatum's movie Dog is coming out this weekend. My son really wants to go. So I'm like, oh, we'll we'll see how this one's going to do. And as we see with streaming where everything is like, oh, you need it to be a series. What are your thoughts about this, Carol?
0: Well, and I'm sure you've discussed this the people that were making, the writers and directors and producers that were making those really interesting indie films five years ago, features, realize that those stories are t- being told best in, on television, primarily streaming. Um, I think that there is a hunger. For, let me go back for one minute, and I'm sure you have talked about this. There is 500 plus series on the air, scripted series across all platforms. In order to break through and break out, you have to be something that people get that fast that is on the side of a bus. It's on a one sheet. And I, I, I this is an explosion, I think, that will course correct. I think there will be far less than 500 scripted series. Um, And I think that this is where we are right now. And it's different sort of storytelling in a way. The the story has to be so compelling that at the end of each episode, you are dying to click through. Each episode, each pilot ends on a huge cliffhanger that you have to find out. You can't stand it. And that's not the way it used to be. But that is how storytelling has changed, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. To get you binge watching, right? Yeah. What are you watching right now that you're actually enjoying?
0: Okay. Guilty pleasures first. No, absolutely. Um, Embarrassing to say married at first sight. Does anybody know that? Oh, I haven't seen it yet, but I've I've seen it go through in my queue. It's so cheesy and everybody's (laughs) horrible. I just love it. Um, uh, love is blind is another one that my daughter just turned me on to Francine. You've seen that. No, married at first sight is like, oopsie, but it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. I hate it, but you it's don't tell so anyone good. in public that you, you watch that. Right. But I just did that. I just did that, which I think is very brave of me to have done that. Um, so, and I love never have I ever on Netflix. Yeah. Um, cool. I really liked Hacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I lean towards comedy, um, although we watch a lot of British detective shows, mysteries, which I Me really too. love. You too? Mm-hmm. What do you watch? Uh, I've really enjoyed Killing Eve, of course.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, gosh, I mean, going back a little bit, like some of the Irish ones that came out, what was the one that um, was out of Ireland that I enjoyed so much? I'm to call it falling, but I don't think that was what it was called.
0: I'm not
1: sure. Bodyguard I think, was really good. I love yeah. that one. I can't believe we didn't get another season yet. What happened?
0: It was so I, amazing. I don't know. It you know it could be COVID. It could be deals fell through. You know they the fall. Make the deal. fall that was it. Yeah. The I mean, fall. It, yes. Um, I loved Killing Eve the first two seasons, but then not so much. Agreed. I gotta say. Um, what else? I love what we do in the shadows. Oh, it's so funny. It's so. It's one of the
1: few, I feel like, laugh out loud shows that's on the air right now. I don't know what you call it, but I've been referring to the types of shows that are really pleasant, like Ted Lasso, that maybe aren't necessarily hysterically laugh out loud as safe comedy. Yeah. Um, and that's been really popular during the pandemic. But in previous years, these shows wouldn't necessarily even be considered
0: comedy. Right. Right. There's. The whole dramedy, you know, trend. Yes, um, I liked uh, Better Things. Um, that's sort of, sort of over almost. Um, Did you like Fleabag? Did you see it? Fleabag to me was one of the most brilliant television shows ever. Genius. Ever. And I never say things like this, but I think Phoebe Waller Bridge is a an artist of a of a generation. Totally. Um, I loved Russian doll, really loved Russian doll. My son lo- was
1: obsessed with Russian doll. And I was like, he loves uh, adult drama. I'm like, honey, I don't think this is for you. <laughs> and I watched it all the way through until the last episode and he came running in and he went, this is too much. I was like, I know.
0: <laughs> I know, I know. Well, how interesting he must be a sophisticated consumer of entertainment.
1: He definitely is. His favorite show right now is this is us. So
0: bring the hankies. Bring the hankies. Um, There's a new show on CBS, a comedy called Ghosts, which is fun. It's really funny. I've seen it advertised a bunch. I haven't seen it yet, though. Yeah, w- watch it. It's worth it. it, especially for a network comedy. It really and it breaks the mold for CBS. It's not typical CBS, and it, it's really been a success for them. So I think that's it. Whenever people ask me that, I sort of draw a blank. And I should probably keep a list of everything that I watch. Um, is there anything? else. Okay. Again, guilty pleasure. I signed up for Peacock so that I could see Carol versus Joe or Joe versus Carol. Oh, which I don't is know Ca- that one. What? I don't know that one. Remember, uh, Joe exotic and tiger King at the beginning. Oh yeah. okay. So this is the, um, fictionalized version. This is the scripted version of it. It It is with Kate McKinnon as Carol Baskin and a guy, an actor that I'm not familiar with as Joe. I literally signed up for it just because I have to see that. That's high concept because as soon as you say Joe exotic, people get it. Yep. My,
1: my guilty pleasure right now is I'm watching Pam and Tommy Okay, let's talk about that. Obsessively. And I know that there's that lack of consent, you know, with Pamela Anderson and I feel guilty about it, but at the same time, I'm like, this show is incredible. And Seth Rogen is, is like the greatest
0: role he's ever done. Could not agree more. In fact, I didn't even realize it was Seth Rogen at first. He's went, so in oh. character. It's incredible. It is. It is amazing. Although I, I have to tell you, I watched the first episode, but did not feel called, so to speak, to watch the next.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: I'm not but sure the, why. The
1: setup of that first episode where he's so humiliated yes. ends up just being the engine, you know, of of this limited series, you know, what is he going to do to get revenge? And it, and it's hysterical. It's so funny. You know what? I'm
0: going to go back. I'm going to check it out.
1: The acting is phenomenal. Yes. The acting is just phenomenal. Yes. It's, it's playful. I don't know. I just see I lived in that era. I lived in LA uh, in that era in the nineties, I was, um, I don't know if you remember it or cruise through Malibu at all, but I was managing Malibu books and company, which of course, yeah, which is everybody's beloved bookstore in Malibu and everybody came through and, um, it was fun selling books to Gary Sinise and a number of the others who came through. Eric Roth was one of our primary customers and he always left with a stack of
0: mysteries to the moon. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, that was a time and place for sure, and how fun that you got to be right there when that was happening. But oh see, God. high concept, uh, Tommy and Pamela. That, yeah, Pam know, and Tommy. Pam and Tommy. You get that like immediately, and you want to watch that because it's so uh, salacious and juicy. So salacious and
1: scandalous. Yeah. In the birth of the internet. It was crazy. I don't feel like the nineties were that long ago. And then watching this show where they have the dial up connection. I'm yeah, like, oh you my God, it. it was a while ago, wasn't it? I'm getting old.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Hey, I want you to tell us more about the showrunner training program. I have a number of writers in the entertainment business school. Lots want to be showrunners. Some of whom may not even enjoy the job, uh, who I think maybe love writing more than showrunning. And some of whom have a lot of producing experience who would be really well qualified for, you know, actually showrunning. Tell us more about it.
0: Well, here, let me just tell you what the eligibility requirements are. You have to be at a senior level writer-producer on a current show and or, and this is what's changed over the recent years, you have to have a project in the active development that is already set up at a network, a cable channel, or a streamer. That's who is eligible. Then you have to be recommended by someone in the business, an executive or a showrunner. Then you get an application. You submit the application. We get about 140 or 50 applications for 25 to 30 slots. Mm -hmm. Then there's interviews. And then we make the real, and there's a selection committee. We make the really hard choice of who is going to get in that year. And the whole thrust of the showrunner training program, the WGA showrunner training program is how do you go from a writer to a manager? And something to know is that if you create a show, that is like so fabulous, but the chances of you being a showrunner are almost zero. And the reason why is when they order a series, they are handing 60 to $80 million to you and saying, I want you to hire 150 people in two months and deliver 30, 8, 10, 13, 22 episodes and don't fuck up how you spend the money. That is gonna go to somebody with whom they have confidence. No business that um, that exists would say, Here, you've never done this before. Let me give you 60 million dollars. That that doesn't happen. So now that's have hard showrunners like a <laughs> Silicon Valley CEO. Absolutely. Once you're a showrunner, you become a CEO. And so the that's the overarching theme of the program. And week one is going for, it's all about managing. So week one is going from writer to manager. Week two is managing writers, the writing process in the writer's room. Week three is managing production and relationships with directors and managing conflict and crisis. Great. Hey, that's actually what
1: my students are learning next week is conflict resolution. That's one Oh, my- good. my favorite things to teach and it's imperative. Absolutely. And do you teach them? Do you use the book uh Difficult
0: Conversations?
1: I don't. I use Talk RX uh by Dr. Neha Sanguin and I use Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg.
0: Great. Um, I'm not familiar with those two books. They sound wonderful, but check out difficult conversations. It's by the Harvard Negotiating Committee. I love that. It literally gives you the words which is great. And, and the approach, um, week four is managing actors and executives. Week five is managing post-production and week six is managing your career and managing a work-life balance.
1: Oh, that's good. I'm glad that they've got that piece added in. I I interviewed um, the uh, executive producer showrunner of the golden girls, Mark Sotkin on the show a little bit ago. And I I asked him what he was most proud of. And he said, being married to the same woman after all those years of working on the show, like she didn't see him, you know, for nine
0: months out of the year, practically. That's absolutely true. And one of the things we talk about is how do you have that conversation with your partner? Before you start the show, because mm-hmm. in the first year, the show will consume you. But if you're lucky enough to have a second year, you're going to have more opportunity for work-life balance.
1: Right. You know, that's why Gary Shanling started his uh, basketball, his weekly basketball game was to give something fun uh, to the writers to do and, you know, get them out of the workaholism of running the show. And he was doing everything between writing and running the show and starring in it. And it's, it's a huge, a huge amount of his life went into that and devotion. I didn't know about basketball, but I really like it. Yeah. Yeah, Sunday, Sunday's basketball. He invited me a bunch. I was always a little bit uh too nervous to be playing basketball around that many celebrities, but I love to shoot hoops with Gary just privately when we were hanging out.
0: That's nice. And and uh Phil Rosenthal who uh did um oh my god. You know the show. Uh everybody loves Raymond. He um <clears throat> he would take his writers out for fabulous dinners because he loves that and good showrunners know how to keep their staffs happy.
1: Absolutely. And it's so much better to be happy than have a toxic workplace. Oh there's so gosh, much yeah. there's so much stress involved and it just destroys some people who don't know how to manage that element of yeah.
0: it, who don't know how to delegate. That's a huge um indicator of who's going to be successful as a showrunner is does this person have the strength of their ego, not egotistical, to delegate so that they can have a life and What's trust right? people they delegate to, find people they trust and then let them do their job.
1: What's your opinion about the Josh Whedon stuff?
0: Um, I don't have an opinion. That's <laughs> my safest
1: opinion to have. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> I totally get it. The diplomacy imperative in this industry is absolutely an imperative because if you get out on social media and say, Hey, I hate this person's show. And then guess who the next job, your interview you're going to have is with that person. And you're on the record on Twitter saying you hate their show. You know, it's a, it's, it's, you have to find your own moral compass and your own way through and just be nice
0: to everybody. Right. I have a motto. Don't be a dick because don't be a jerk. There's no upside to that. Yeah. hundred percent.
1: Oh, Carol, I've been, so I could feel like I could talk to you forever. I feel like you're an old friend and yes. I'm so grateful for you for being with us on the show. Um, thank you so much for your time. How can people find you?
0: Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. This has been a great conversation. I have really enjoyed it. Um, you can find me at Carol, C A R O L E com. That's my website. You can find me there and all the stuff I'm doing. And again, if you want that free ebook, just go to carolkirshner.com forward slash story.
1: Fantastic. Thanks for that gift for the audience, Carol. I appreciate that so much. Of course. Of course.
0: Thank you for tuning into this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.